You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. This morning, we're looking together at verses 39 through 31. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. You'll find this on page 930 of the Pew Bible. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and we'll read together Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. Hear the word of God. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Well, it's on his way to Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders to say farewell. And there was a great deal of mutual affection between these close friends and fellow workers. And this is his farewell address. It's filled with theological truth and practical wisdom. And what's interesting is that Paul summed up his ministry, both public and private, by these two words, repentance and faith. The aim of the gospel is to save sinners by bringing them into union with Christ. He poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church so as to enable us to repent and believe. It's not something we can do on our own. He gives that as a gift. And theologians call this, as we said in Sunday school, effectual calling. The call of the gospel is made effectual to his people. And with minds enlightened and wills renewed, sinners repent of their sin and they trust in Christ. So Paul exhorts these elders to be faithful in their duty to the flock and for good reason. These sheep for whom Christ died were obtained with nothing else than the blood of God. That's what he said. The blood of God. They are his people purchased at great infinite price, united to him in love. And so the elders are to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. And the great motive for shepherding the church is the fact that these sheep belong to him. But at the same time, there's another motive. It's a negative incentive for elders to be on the alert because Paul anticipated the rise in the church of fierce wolves and false teachers. Some will attack from without, while others will arise secretly from within. Their aim will be to destroy the church, not sparing the flock. And these men will speak twisted things so as to lead astray the disciples of Christ. 
So in addition to serving Christ, the elders must be on guard for the flock. (laughs) Fierce or savage wolves are the natural enemies of ordinary sheep. You know that as well as I do. And that's the way it is in nature, and that's the way it is in the spiritual realm. By twisting things, they distort the standard of truth and righteousness. They want to create a following. That's what they want. They want the sheep to follow them. We see all kinds of illustrations of this in our day. You know as well as I do that a large church with many listeners can really stroke a man's ego. These are all mine. Often wolves are gifted with friendly, affable, likable personalities. That's what's so hard about it. They're likable. He seems so nice. He couldn't possibly seek to destroy the church. But as Paul says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's why it's so hard and so dangerous. So shepherds have to be on the alert, exercising wisdom and discernment. Exposing and dispelling error is not easy, and it requires no little courage. For example, Athanasius, you've heard of this man, a church father. Athanasius stood against the heresy of Arianism in the 4th century A.D. He was a courageous defender of the faith, He stood for the orthodox doctrine, and as a reward for his fidelity, he was exiled no less than five times. As a matter of fact, they described him with this phrase, Athanasius against the world. At times, it seemed like he was standing by himself for truth. And given the fragile psyches of our culture and the climate of political correctness, this kind of thing is not easy. Exposing and defending against error is considered nasty and unchristian. And often, like Athanasius, those who engage in this vital task are held in contempt. But it is a necessary task, not to be mean for being mean's sake, but for the sake of truth. The responsibility is laid upon us all, but it's especially upon officers. At one point, Jesus admonished the Jews for failing to recognize the signs of the times. That's what it says. They had failed to exercise discernment, and I fear that many in our day do the same thing. Let's understand the times in which we live, and let's recognize the culture in which we're placed. God has blessed you and I in this country with relative peace and prosperity. And as Elder Miller prayed, for that we can be thankful. And I'm glad you said that. But church history tells us and teaches us that in such times as these, moral and theological errors thrive. There tends to be among churches a general lack of caution and care and diligence. Persecution, I I know it's grievous, and I know it's wicked. 
But persecution, if you think about it, is an effective restraint on laxity in the faith, isn't it? Orthodoxy rides far more safely in the stormy seas of persecution than it does in the calm harbors of peace and prosperity. It was when the master's men slept that the enemy sowed weeds among the wheat. So God's people, we should not despise such times as these, but God's people have to be discerning. Especially the officers must contend earnestly for the faith. And Paul recognized this. He said that false teachers are one of the devil's most effective means of destroying the church. Children, said John, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John goes on. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Later on, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So you see, Satan is very shrewd. He is shrewd in his selection of those whom he uses to twist the truth. He'll take anybody into his service, mind you. But he will not have everyone suitable to this task. Not every soldier who fights on the field of battle can sit in the council of war. That requires shrewdness and skill and cunning, and only a few have those qualities. A really good salesman, to put another metaphor into the mix, a really good salesman, He can often sell a bad product to any unwary customer. You know better than I do if that's the case. What did they say, selling ice to an Eskimo? I mean, it's crazy. The devil enlists the most cunning to propagate his lies within the church. For example, the high-ranking Jews hired Tertullus in the judicial case against Paul. Do you remember? Here was a man who was gifted a powerful speaker, skilled in the art of persuasion, and he was used by Satan. Indeed, the very first instrument that Satan employed was none other than the serpent. Did you ever ask yourself why? Well, we're told. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the devil looks for those with ability and wit and cunning and aptitude. And these are the ones that he'll use to disseminate his errors among truths. They're sharp enough to package their poison in wraps of sugar. They can employ the strength of their eloquence and the power of their charm and the complexity of an argument. And the best of them can clothe the most vile blasphemies in garments that glitter. But as Peter tells us, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow them. That's the surprising thing. 
And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You know something, even the most capable and learned of Christians are not exempt from this. Many of you recently in the Argyle Inn have finished the book by J. Gresham Machen. Machen was a brilliant theologian. He was a seminary professor. He founded Westminster Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As a postgraduate student, he studied in Germany under the great Wilhelm Hermann. Hermann was a liberal, a theological liberal. He taught that Jesus was nothing more than an exemplary man. Great man, great teacher, not God. He taught that revelation was not public and corporate, but it was individual. It came to you as a particular person. And Hermann was able to make liberalism attractive and heart-gripping. He did so, I quote, by the magnetic and overpowering force of his fervent religious spirit. And in one of Machen's letters to his father, this is what he had to say. I quote, Hermann refuses to allow the student to look at religion from a distance as a thing to be studied merely. He speaks right to the heart. And I've been thrown into all confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I've known in myself during the past few years. Well, it was only after returning to the United States upon further reflection that Mation began to understand that the Christ whom Hermann espoused never existed. It was a false Christ. It wasn't the Christ of the New Testament. It was a figment of his imagination. And yet the force of Hermann's personality and the fervor of his spirit had made a deep impact upon Machen's life. And it was only with time and distance that he was able to see Hermann's false faith. The man was not a follower or a worshiper of the true Christ revealed in the scriptures. And had Machen not been trained in sound theology as a child, had he not been catechized, he would have been led astray. Consider the aim of the ministry and the Christian discipleship, especially parents, listen up. The aim is to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's the aim. That we grow in Christ, become mature in Christ. And I think it's distressing, at least to me, to see many professing Christians being nonchalant and indifferent about theological error. They may be familiar with some of the main things, which is good. By faith in Christ, I'm saved by his blood. That's good. 
But with regard to everything that Jesus commanded, they have given little thought. What's worse is that they put forth little effort in learning the fullness of the faith and guarding against error. For example, to most people, the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're familiar with that at least on a cursory level. The Westminster Confession, 33 chapters. Larger catechism, 196 questions. Shorter catechism, 107 questions. All this stuff. They seem to be so full and overly precise. But you know something? When these documents were written, they were considered to be just the basics. That Westminster Shorter Catechism is prepared primarily for instructing children in the faith. People seem to be far more concerned about their physical health than their spiritual well-being. And Paul says something about this. He tells us, while bodily training is of some value, it's valuable. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Our bodies are amazing things. They're gifts from God, incredible things. But they will decay and they will rot in the ground. Our souls, by contrast, are eternal, immortal. I should say immortal, not eternal. And by all means, you and I should be good stewards of our bodies. But let us not neglect the health of our souls. Theological errors are destructive And it's difficult to root them out once they're established. Do you know that it took Machen 10 years to fully recover from Hermann's influence? And he was one of the elite. 10 years. And the question that I ask is this. Why would God allow errors to infiltrate the church? Why does he do that? Three reasons, at least. First, He allows them so that our faith and sincerity and steadfastness may be tested. In his farewell speech, Moses warned against the rise of false prophets, and he said, The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He's the same God today as he was then. And he continues to test his people. Not that he may know what's in us, but that we may know what's within ourselves. Because it's often in the midst of doctrinal conflict that convictions are strengthened. That's first reason. Second reason, he allows them to chastise those who neglect the light of the gospel. The apostle says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Their understanding apparently was weak, and their faith had progressed far too slowly. And he implies that this theological infirmity was due to their neglect of training in the faith. For lack of training, an athlete cannot compete. For lack of training, a musician cannot perform. Why would we think it's any different in the Christian faith? It needs discipline. 
There are basic principles plain to be understood and necessary to learn. And those to whom much is given, much is required. I think you know that. So first reason, he allows it to test our faith. Second reason, he allows it to chastise neglect. And third reason, he allows them as punishments upon those who abuse the light of the gospel. It's part of the curse to be given up to a darkened mind, void of discernment. The majority of this world rejects sound doctrine and suppresses the truth. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that's the non-Christian world and the world of hypocrites. And to be given over to error is a severe judgment. What a terrible stroke of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so, as Paul tells us, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Three reasons. Testing, chastising, punishing. So I think what this implies is that you and I need to be diligent and faithful in our earnest pursuit of maturity in Christ. The knowledge of God's Son is not acquired by osmosis, but by learning. Even Jesus himself had to learn by study of the Scriptures. I think it'd be nice just to download this into our minds, but that's not the way it works. It takes effort, and it takes understanding. We listen, we study, we learn the truths. And this is the value of catechizing. It's the training in the basic truths of Christianity. Once they're mastered, then we can make progress in deepening the faith. But we must settle the fundamental articles. Develop strong convictions. One of the questions we ask in a membership interview, as you probably know, ask yourself, if somebody said to you, what is the gospel? It's surprising how relatively few people can answer that question. They do love Jesus. I'm not questioning that. But they can't tell you what the gospel is. God provided resources for our growth and knowledge, faith and repentance. We attend worship. And if the church is feeding the sheep, we can grow. And Christ appointed this church or all churches as the great agent of Christian discipleship. We have theological conversations, we have family worship, we have good Christian books, things are recorded in the internet or on tapes, or I guess it's CDs now, yeah. This is one of the secrets of success for mature believers. That's how you acquire sound judgment and strong conviction and stable character. You don't have to be a genius. You might be a person of average intellect, like me. It took me a long time to learn this stuff. So those of us of average intellect, we can resist false teaching if we have the fundamentals. David says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 119. 
I'm told, and I think this is true, bank tellers are taught to detect counterfeit bills by careful study of the genuine bills. There's so many counterfeits, how could you know them all? But there's only one genuine. Simple saints can guard against theological error and resist the cunning of deceivers, while others who are far more intelligent and successful people succumb to error. And why does that happen? How is it possible? These are people with tremendous ability and great learning and keen minds. They have strong memories. Many of them are professionals in society, and yet in spiritual things, they're easily deceived. How does that happen? For all their natural ability, their souls have not been trained in godliness. They may be sincere, but they're so overly simple. They should be teachers, but they remain children and they're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You and I both know in practical matters they're discerning, but in spiritual matters they're easily manipulated. So let's apply and employ the ordinary means. Be like those at the pool of Bethesda. Do you remember that story? That's where they would lay all the invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. They put them by the pool of Bethesda. And supposedly, now this was the tradition, an angel of the Lord would stir the water and whoever was the first to get in would be healed. In like manner, we have to wait upon the Lord in the use of appointed means so that when he stirs, your souls are healed. I don't know about Bethesda. I don't know if that actually happened or not. But I do know about the appointed means. God promises to bless through them those who wait upon him in worship. And as we use them and pray in our closets and worship at church and listen to his word, we affirm our agreement with his method of sanctifying us and becoming mature. And let me just say this, ministers must be tested. Teachers have to be vetted. Sermons have to be scrutinized. Don't just take it because I tell you. Examine what you hear by the scriptures. Findlay puts it this way, In this world there appears no truth without its counterfeit, no religion without hypocrites, no gold without tinsel, nor good wheat of God unmixed with tares. Christ is mimicked by Antichrist. So let's not suppose that because a man is a minister, he must be sound in his views or faithful in his office or exemplary in his life or fruitful in his preaching or committed to the truth. We all share in this solemn duty. God has, has God sent him? Is he speaking the truth of God? That's the question. And the enemies are many. They're many in number, they're many in errors, and they're many in practices. And so John exhorts us to scrutinize our teachers by the standard of the word. He says, and I quote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why, John? Why should we sit here and test our minister? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And let's make sure that we have a sound understanding of the doctrine of Christ. Because he goes on to say, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In the doctrine of Christ, you and I find the bedrock of Christianity. The foundation of our faith. If all scripture points to Jesus, well, then we must get this doctrine right. And it's no wonder that Antichrist vehemently opposes this truth, Christ. To this day, that anti-Christian spirit continues to fight against it. Jesus has to be confessed, as we did this morning, as the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father. I want you to know that this pulpit confesses this. He's the son of man who assumed to himself a real human nature. He is both God and man. He's divine and human. Two natures, one person. And by his obedience to God's law and by his sacrifice on a Roman cross, he fulfilled all righteousness. And God imputes that righteousness He gives that righteousness to believers who receive it by faith. That's the sound doctrine of Christ. If I don't have that, I lose everything. I have nothing. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you and I do not take shelter and find refuge in the name of Christ, we perish. Because you know it as well as I do. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. And you know what is due. Death is the penalty for sin. There is no other name by which our diseased bodies can be cured and our sinful souls be saved. And that ought to be our primary concern in life. Rescue from God's wrath and curse. We talked about that in Sunday school. Escaping it. It's easy for us to destroy ourselves. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Even the least Sin, and this is so countercultural, the least sin, an errant, careless thought, deserves his wrath and curse. And there's no escaping death eternal apart from salvation in Christ. Death is earned, eternal life is given. And it's received only through Jesus. So don't let fierce wolves deceive you and deprive you of salvation. There are four qualities needed for understanding spiritual truth. I'll go through these quickly. Four qualities. One, a clear understanding. You have to be able to hear, read, and search the Scripture. Jesus commanded, search the Scriptures. 
It's a Christian's duty. Don't just skim over them. Don't neglect them. Search them. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Number one, a clear understanding. Number two, a good sense. You have to grasp it. You have to grasp the revealed truth in Scripture. That's how God wants us to understand who he is and what he's done. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God has not put the gospel out of reach for any reasonable human being. Even a child can understand the truth of Scripture, or at least the gospel. Clear understanding, good sense, a careful consideration, number three. Reflect upon it. Consider it. It may take a great deal of review for you to remember it. I've had to review every day of my life. I started late, converted at 23. I was way behind the eight ball. Review, review, review. You can get a few nuggets today, a few nuggets tomorrow, and after a while those nuggets are put together and you have a whole foundation of faith. A clear understanding, a good sense, a careful consideration, and fourth and most importantly, spiritual illumination. You have to have your mind and heart irradiated by gospel light because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, and that's the Holy Spirit's work. This quality is so important that it can go a long way to make up for any deficiency in the others. And it explains why some of greater intellect fall prey to false teaching. They lack spiritual illumination. And they lack the humility to ask for it. So let's remember that only by the grace of God we may be kept from error. You might be the most eager, diligent, studious church member and perhaps still be deceived. Paul was. I think he was the most zealous Pharisee of them all. Church member, advancing beyond all of his colleagues, a rising star in the church. And yet Paul was deceived. He was in error. He missed the fulfillment in Christ. And it was only by the grace of God through a revelation of Jesus that he embraced the truth. So that if the greatest Christian of all time needed divine grace, we certainly do. And God says he'll bless us as we look for the ancient paths where the good way is, the tried and true method of growing in the knowledge of Christ. And insofar as we do this, he'll keep us by his power through faith unto salvation. May that be true. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We are grateful for the Lord Jesus, the King and Head of the Church, for those faithful shepherds who help us to remain on the narrow path that leads to life. And we pray for discernment and for the illumination of your spirit to know your truth and to resist theological error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.